Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and I must say, I'm very, very impressed with just how many people have been listening. And I'm not saying this to brag, but I want to thank all of you who have been continuously listening to my podcasts for quite some time, and I have no doubts that many of you out there have been listening to them since June of last year. And I also am very thankful that many of you have spread the word to others who are not only just interested in history, but enjoy listening to podcasts that are of historical uh, significance. So I want to say thank you to all of you who have not only just been listening to what I've shared with you all since June of last year, but have uh, spread the word to others. And I continue to hope that that success uh, will last a long time. So thank you to all of you. Well, here we are back on the air with Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse by Eric Dolan. We're going to be discussing a two-part series about the lights of a new nation. So, we're now going to be into the... um, 1780s, or rather the late 1780s, and I must say that this is a very interesting period of time for America. Well, I don't think America has ever experienced a dull moment in its life, but, you know, here we've defeated the mightiest um, military force in the world, and of course, yes, we had the surrender of Yorktown in 1781, And yes, the war itself, being the Revolutionary War, did not officially end until the Treaty of Paris in September of 1783. But even with all that success, especially knowing that we were able to reclaim territory that the British um, possessed in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, most notably that territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, Even with all that uh, territory that was eventually reclaimed, it didn't mean everything was okay. We were still operating under a fledgling system of government, as I mentioned uh, towards the end of the previous podcast, the infamous Articles of Confederation where the states uh, ran the show and the national government was pretty much seen as the laughingstock. The states pretty much you know, said, here's what's supposed to be done, here's what the national government can't do. So, to sum it all up, we don't really have a true functioning government that operates under checks and balances. In other words, we don't have a system of government that controls or that can effectively prevent one branch from overpowering the other. So, four years later, 1787, thank heavens that we have enough smart men who who uh, realize for themselves up close that, hey, or just in general that, hey, things don't look good. They haven't been looking good for a while, but all that's happened within the last couple of years, if we don't do something now, our status as being a independent country isn't going to have any kind of meaning whatsoever. In other words, here we fought tooth and nail to to fight for our independence from the mightiest uh, empire in the world, but yet if we can't govern our own selves effectively, then how are we going to be respected not only from home but abroad? 
So our first leadoff question is the following. What is significant about September 19th, 1787? Or rather, it's a two-part question. I take it back. So the first part is what's significant about September 19th, 1787? And then question number two is why is June 21st, 1788 also important? So let's go to the first question with regards to the date of September 19th, 1787. It is the day that the U.S. that the U.S. Constitution was adopted by the framers, or I should say rather the delegates, being 39 of them, whom uh, came together after about close to five months of um, debate over how to go about um, forming a government that would work not only to their advantage but to that of the people. And, of course, I don't believe all 39 men signed it on the date of September 19th, but they all did come together unanimously to approve the document being the Constitution as our nation's legal governmental um, binding document. Now, the next big hurdle that uh, these signers had to contend with, or let alone framers, was that they had to go back to their respective states and they had to sell the Constitution itself to the people, so therefore each state would have had its uh, ratification convention. So as for question number two, why is uh, June 21st of 1788 so important? Well, nine months after the Philadelphia Convention had adjourned, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. So think about it, folks. You have 13 states. You need to have nine. Nine is the magic number for the uh, Constitution itself to become our nation's official governing document. So we have New Hampshire to thank for being the ninth state. And because of what New Hampshire was able to do, about um, seven days later, or just a short couple, a short couple of days later, Virginia became the tenth state, and then New York was the eleventh state the following month. So, had it not been for New Hampshire, there's a good likelihood that maybe Virginia would have taken the place as being that ninth state. But we have New Hampshire to thank for um, being able to save our um, fragile union from going into anarchy, because if the Constitution itself, folks, had not been implemented when it had, I do believe that there is a very strong likelihood that um, perhaps our nation's young republic would have probably been, um, I I don't know, it's very hard to say, but what I do know is that it would have been very um, demoralizing. After all, it was Benjamin Franklin who said that you know, the Constitution, It's this document, while it may not be perfect, it was the best we could come up with. So in other words, he knew that there were going to be people, like a fair number of other signers, who knew that there were going to be people who weren't going to approve of it right away, or maybe even like it in general, but it was the best thing that they could come up with. And what do you know, after 233 years later, this Constitution of ours is still intact, I certainly hope uh, years from now it will still be there, especially in light of what happened at the start of uh, January. Of course, I'm not going to 
get into a lot of um, discussion on that because I don't want to lose um, my focus, but that event itself was a uh, constitutional uh, crisis type event where our government really was um, in danger. But that's also not the first time where our nation has experienced uh, that kind of extremism, and it's unfortunate that it's uh, become more prevalent uh, now. But anyways, um, back to the primary uh, focal point of our um, discussion. The, uh, because of New Hampshire um, and what they did by becoming the ninth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution, we know that the Constitution itself becomes our nation's official governing document to where America herself had a true backbone for guiding her people, present and future. Well, there you have it, folks. It's like I said earlier, Benjamin Franklin said, hey, it may not be the perfect document, but it's the best we could come up with. Basically, we've established a um, an effective 101 um, document for guiding our people, not only in the present state, but for where our country will go in the future. And what's important about April 30th, 1789? George Washington is sworn in as our nation's first commander-in-chief. I think it's fair to say that everybody knew that once the Constitution was signed and went into effect, and that the states did ratify it, that George Washington was going to be our nation's first um, uh, officer, or what we call like first president. Of course, there were those who wanted him to be king, or they wanted to call him his excellency. But as Washington said, he had fought a long war to keep kings out of our country. So I think commander-in-chief or president would have was obviously a more fitting uh, title for him. All right, so here's a, a very important question here. Uh, between the spring and summer of 1789, what issue emerged that Congress took up? It's a very important one. How about jurisdiction over lighthouses? In other words, would the individual states or the federal government be in charge of managing our nation's lighthouses? After the Revolutionary War ended, the states themselves were in charge of lighthouse affairs. Uh, but then again, they were in charge of many affairs, but ironically, being in charge of lighthouses was one of them. The states were the ones who went about repairing to rebuilding lighthouses that were either damaged or destroyed during the Revolutionary War. In Massachusetts, this probably should not have come as a uh, shocker to me, but Massachusetts was the first uh, of the 13 states to lead the way in the post-Revolutionary War era, and how ironic that Massachusetts was also the first in the colonial era. As I had mentioned from an earlier podcast, uh, Massachusetts was the first to build a lighthouse in colonial America. But Massachusetts led the way starting in 1783 uh, during that the start of the post-Revolutionary War era by building a new 75-foot-tall Boston lighthouse, which replaced the previous one that was destroyed by the British during the war. Massachusetts also built lighthouses at Great Point on Nantucket in 1784. Uh, Nantucket, those of you know, is not too far from Martha's Vineyard. And then, they, um, then the state of Massachusetts also built another one at the mouth of the Merrimack River in 1788 at Newburyport. Newburyport is uh, not far from uh, Salem or uh, Marblehead in Gloucester. As a matter of fact, it's not far from the Massachusetts-New Hampshire line. So 
I think the rest of the states should definitely um, be benefiting from what Massachusetts is doing. Now, up until uh, the late 1780s, the colonies, but then later the states, went about funding lighthouses through um, various means, ranging from lotteries to imposing tonnage duties. And those of you who don't know what tonnage means, that means uh, taxes, or duties in the sense that, rather I should say, are taxes on ships arriving into major port cities you know, like Boston, uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia. You know, and it's, I should point out, it's interesting how I'm, with mentioning how the states went about imposing duties, that is taxes. Shouldn't that be something that the national government um, ought to be doing? Well, that problem was corrected when our um, framers or let alone delegates convened in Philadelphia, they were able to uh, fix the problem where, the, where, how do I say it, that states alone could not um, impose uh, taxes on the federal government. But I still find it um, interesting and uh, worth noting that the states did um, go about uh, continuing to fund lighthouses through uh, lotteries. After all, that was the most successful way to go about funding uh, projects of, of all kinds, but most notably for lighthouses. Here's a question that uh, ties into what I mentioned earlier about um, funding, especially lighthouse funding. Why was it essential for the federal government to manage all lighthouse funding affairs? For starters, in 1789, the federal government did not have a way to repay our nation's war debts, okay? Remember, folks, you know, we, we have a lot of money still um, in the red, meaning that money that's been unpaid, especially money that uh, needs to be paid back to France. You know, France lent us a lot of money uh, because they um, wanted to form an alliance with us. They wanted to get back at England given that they lost their share of territory in the aftermath of being defeated by the British during that infamous Seven Years' War, or I should say French and Indian War. So, you know, yes, France was kind enough to lend us money, but it's got to be paid back. And for those of you who remember uh, my uh, podcast series on uh, founding rivals, uh, Madison versus Monroe, uh, the the Bill of Rights and and the election that saved a nation... When George Washington became president, even performing the simplest day-to-day governmental functions was no picnic. There was very little money for the government itself to even operate on a daily basis. So the government has to do whatever it takes to raise money to pay for stuff, not just to pay back debts, but to pay for projects. After all, you know, people aren't just going to come up and say, here's, um, here's X amount of money I can give you in hard currency or paper notes. After all, even the paper notes themselves don't have a lot of value. And plus, two, not everyone has access to hard currency, most notably gold or silver. And if anybody does, they're, I would say they're probably in the elite 1% to 2% of the American population. But it was very imperative that the government 
got the upper hand on imposing duties, a.k.a. collecting taxes for revenue purposes. And by doing so, this would mean that over time there could be a shift from ballooning deficits to um, potential uh, surpluses. So basically, the only way to get out of red, well, there's a variety of ways to get out of the, out of the red, but one of them, obviously, would be for the government to uh, take over um, not just lighthouse funding uh, with the lighthouses, but, you know, being able to fund through other affairs. But but the lighthouse one was essential because, after all, you know, the lighthouses are um, a means of proper um, security for helping ships come in and out of the harbors. Um, lighthouses, you know, are saving people's lives, even if their ships are damaged or were flattened out because of a shoal. Um, people's lives, for the most part, are still saved, being saved because of these uh, brilliant beacons. Secondly, many in Congress believed the federal government's power to finance lighthouses was equivalent to regulating foreign and domestic commerce. That, to me, is important because, after all, there is that commerce clause in the Constitution that gives the federal government the right to regulate not only just foreign commerce, but uh, domestic commerce that falls under interstate and intrastate commerce. Now, when we think of interstate, what do we often think of? The highways, like Interstate 95, 64, uh, interstates going north and south, um, going through multiple states. But when it comes to intrastate, that means going from point A to point B in one state only. And I should know that very well, given that I work in transportation in the trucking industry, I get people who will call up, for example, um, someone could call up and say, Kirk, uh, I need to know how much it's going to cost to ship uh, material from um, Richmond, Virginia to Roanoke, Virginia. That's an example right there of intrastate commerce. And a good example of interstate, uh, someone calls up and says, Kirk, I need to know how much it's going to cost to ship something from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So there we have it, folks. The government needs to be able to have authority over how it's going to regulate interstate and interstate commerce on a national level as well as uh, foreign commerce as to um, what foreign nations can and cannot bring in um, to the United States. Now, um, I think it's fair to say that many in Congress who believed that the federal government's power to finance lighthouses being equivalent to regulating commerce foreign and domestically, those people would have been what we know as the Federalists. And who are the Federalists? Well, they are men who believe in a strong, centralized, powerful government. In other words, they believe in, a, in this strong central government that gives the gov government broad scope. In other words, they, that the government should be allowed to um, impose taxes on the people, that the government should be have broad enough powers to where um, the states themselves are not interfering in the government's ability to um, conduct business to where its needs not only can be met, but for the people as well. On the other hand, though, those who don't believe what the Federalists stand for in terms of governmental vision, well, who are they? They are the anti-Federalists. If, now, before I get into the anti-federalists, I should say that when I think of federalists, I think of George Washington, I think of uh, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, 
But more often than not, when I think of uh, the anti-federalists, I, think, I tend to think of Thomas Jefferson as being that true leader of those who um, do not support a strong centralized government. They would rather uh, support a government, a national government that's limited as to what it can and cannot do. And basically they fear that if the government has too much power, then the people below will not benefit from those broad powers. On the other hand, though, I should point this out, that there was one man who was an anti-federalist, and he, he was a representative from Massachusetts. He even signed the Declaration of Independence. He was also a delegate to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. He didn't uh, sign the Constitution and there were uh, at least 15 men who didn't sign, all in the name because at the time that the Constitution was put into play right away in 1787, there was no Bill of Rights. But of course, in a few short years later, there would be uh, what we know as a Bill of Rights, a.k.a. First Ten Amendments. But this man um, did something very unique in terms of being, for, not just for being an anti-federalist, but how he approached the matter involving lighthouses. So, my next question to you all is this. What anti-federalist representative from Massachusetts introduced a bill that would allow for the transfer of existing lighthouses and other navigational devices to the federal government? His name was uh, Elbridge Jerry. Elbridge Jerry... Um, was a native of Marblehead, which is uh, north of Boston, and it's a very prominent uh, fishing village. His family um, was heavily involved in the mercantile business, and they owned several uh, fleets of ships that were involved in maritime trade. Elbridge Jerry obviously is, was no stranger to um, ships coming in and out of the harbor, or the harbor, let alone and he knew how well mariners had heavily re relied upon lighthouses for safety purposes. So it was Elbridge Jerry whom, opposed, whom proposed this bill because he knew that, um, that in order for the federal government to be able to have broad control over commerce coming in and out of not just foreign nations into America, but um, domestically, he knew that the government needed to have a better way to collect um, revenue, not just for short-term purposes, but long-term. Not just revenue for all the goods that are coming in, but the money that would go towards paying off uh, debts, most notably from the war and from other um, matters um, that were that occurred leading up to the uh, creation of our uh, republic. Now, um, on August 7th of 1789, George Washington, or let alone President Washington, signed Elbridge Jerry's bill into law that became known as the Lighthouse Act. The Lighthouse Act became America's first public works program. Almost like the equivalent of when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president when we had the uh, Works Progress Administration. So this is a huge step up in the right direction. Now, for the anti-federalists, um, I know I said earlier they believed in a limited government, but they also believed that the lighthouses themselves 
the structures were to have remained under state control. They truly believed that that the states were just as capable of funding lighthouse construction to uh, repairing them, and I have no doubts that the states would have been. But at the same time, we're also looking, we're also talking about a matter of national security here to where in some instances, some things would just be better off uh, being transferred to the federal government like lighthouses. But I will say this, even the transfer of power, that is turning over the reins was not a, um, it wasn't a peaceful move. I know that there were many in Massachusetts who were very skeptical of this. Some, uh, Natives in Massachusetts told government officials that, look, if you don't treat these lighthouses with respect and, and take care of them in the manner that they ought to, then you will have to have no other choice but to surrender them back over to us. Thankfully, um, it didn't escalate into a war or to an insurrection. I know it sounds crazy, but think about it, folks. Transfer of power is not an easy thing, and it doesn't always revolve around an outgoing president leaving and an incoming family arriving. It even involves um, structures as to who is entitled to manage the structure and maintain it versus someone else. What government department uh, was charged with overseeing um, America's lighthouses in the early years? Uh, The Treasury Department. And who is America's uh, first Treasury Secretary? Alexander Hamilton, a prominent Federalist. As a matter of fact, most of you probably know uh, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson were did not like each other. Two um, extreme um, difference. What do you call it? Two bright men, but their political ideologies did not come anywhere close to uh, being bipartisan. Hamilton, the Federalist; Jefferson, the Anti-Federalist. Hamilton believing that the wealthy and the well-educated should run the government, whereas Thomas Jefferson believed that ordinary, everyday people were just as equal in having a say in governmental affairs as those above. And of course, his interpretation of ordinary, everyday people were the uh, farmers, most notably the farmers who, um, prominent farmers whose uh, economy was that of, based on agrarian. Now, I should uh, mention something else about Elbridge Jerry that um, that should not go unnoticed, and it's um, <laughs> something that um, I, I believe most of you know, but I know that many of you out there probably don't know, and now would be a great time for me to share that with you all. Congressman Elbridge Jerry became famous for instituting a political practice he himself created, which still exists to this day. What exactly is this political practice called? The answer is gerrymandering. What is gerrymandering? I first learned about it back in high school. And it does come up in the news quite a bit sometimes. And um, gerrymandering was the first, it was first instituted in 1812 when Elbridge Jerry himself was governor of Massachusetts. He signed a bill redrawing the districts in his state to benefit his party, being the Anti-Federalists or the Jeffersonian Republicans. It, it was a measure favoring one party's interests, 
over the opposition. And that's the way it still is today. It is a very ruthless and dirty tactic in regards to political manipulation that, it, that still exists to this day. I did see a picture once some years ago where Elbridge Jerry's district, or let alone the redrawing of the districts, were shaped in salaman like salamanders. In other words, there was so much, um, it was so big to where everyone else whom was not of his um, liking or the opposition was left behind. He basically was squeezing every inch available so that it would benefit his party and himself. Well, Democrats and Republicans are, are both very guilty of gerrymandering, regardless of state. And I, I hate to say this, I don't believe gerrymandering probably will go away anytime soon. Um, but yes, Elbridge Jerry, we do have him to thank for proposing a bill that George Washington did sign into law that did allow for the transfer of lighthouses that were under state control, including navigational aids to the federal government. But unfortunately, if there is one thing that Elbridge Jerry was not uh, well remembered for as time went along, was, the, was his initial institution of what we know now as gerrymandering, drawing districts in one state to benefit their party, but excluding everyone else. Political discrimination. Our next question is the following. How many lighthouses were in existence along the East Coast after Congress passed the 1789 Lighthouse Act? I'll give you a hint. The number is between uh, 10 and 20. The answer is 12. 12 is a small number, but you know 12 is also probably better than not having any lighthouses. However, three more would get quickly added after uh, the 1789 Lighthouse Act was passed. The first one was the Portland Headlight, which be Portland Head, Portland Head Lighthouse, rather, I should say, which first began construction in 1784 a year after the Revolutionary War officially ended, but it wasn't completed until 1791. Now, for those of you who know about the Portland Lighthouse, um, isn't that in Portland, Maine? Yes. My wife and I have been to Maine. We have seen the Portland Headlight. It's a, it's a beautiful lighthouse. But let me ask you all this question. Is Maine, was Maine already in, um, was Maine its own separate state by around 1789? No. Maine is still a part of Massachusetts. And it would remain that way for another uh, 30 years, not until 1820, when Maine itself became um, an actual um, independent state as a part of the um, Missouri Compromise 30 years later. But, Remember, in 1789, folks, when uh, the Portland Headlight uh, nears completion, which it does in 1791, Maine is still part of Massachusetts. The next lighthouse was uh, Tybee Island, which was completed um, in around the set early 1790s, but its history of, uh, being, of being constructed went back much earlier. And for those of you who don't know where Tybee Island is, that's outside of Savannah, Georgia. 
I have a brother-in-law whose uh, parents were originally from Savannah and uh, know Tybee and knew Tybee Island very well. Uh, I've seen it before a long time back, but it's a it's a nice uh, place. And then the uh, the third one during this time was the Cape Henry Lighthouse along um, Virginia's uh, eastern shore. So really, by that time, three more. On top of the existing 12, we have 15. But what's interesting about the Cape Henry Lighthouse is that it would would become the first lighthouse paid for and built entirely by the federal government. Remember, folks, the other lighthouses that were in existence, along with um, the Portland Head Light and the Tybee Island Lighthouse, they all had been built by their uh, respective states. But as for the Portland Head Light and Tybee Island, while they were already started... They were finished by the federal government. The Cape Henry Lighthouse, uh, which is at the southern, around the southern tip of Virginia's eastern shore, that was paid for and built entirely by the federal government. So that was a unique first onto itself. However, it's, and, it, and the project was completed in 1792, but its origins were traced as far back as 1720 when Virginia's lieutenant governor, Alexander Spotswood, first proposed the idea. And I'm sure many of you are wondering why so why weren't there more lighthouses in existence even uh, leading up to say 1789? Well, I think it's fair to say that there were, but we all must remind be reminded of the fact that not all lighthouses did survive. Some were destroyed by the British, some um, just simply didn't make it um, for other reasons. But I do know that uh, the war itself, being the Revolutionary War, had put an entire halt on lighthouses that weren't completely finished. Most notably, um, like the lighthouse in Tybee Island, um, even um, the Cape Henry Lighthouse in Virginia. So I think it is fair to say that many lighthouses, while they were initially started on, they were put on halt during the American Revolution because of because of the war itself and people being away, fighting, say, either in Boston or fighting in um, New Jersey or South Carolina. I mean, not everybody is able to stay in one uh, direction or or one uh, physicality. I mean, people were moving left and right, and some people were probably afraid that if they had built the lighthouse to uh, full completion during the war, that there was a likelihood that the British themselves if if they got a hold of it, not only would it fall into their hands, but perhaps they would destroy what we had worked so hard to build. Here's another question here. From the 1790s leading up to the War of 1812, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the War of 1812, that's often referred to as America's Forgotten War, um, how many more lighthouses did the United States government build? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, 25 and 40. The answer is 34. That is quite a phenomenal number. So it might be fair to say that um, we're almost at close to 50 lighthouses going into towards the very start of the second decade of the 19th century. However, uh, the majority of the 34 lighthouses built uh, were done so in New England, And I think that's fair to say because New England or the the New England region alone is was dominated by maritime commerce, along with power from uh, politicians and civic leaders who 
possessed a great deal of knowledge, not just about the maritime industry, but uh, lighthouses themselves. And I think it's fair to say that you have men like, you know, John Adams, even though he's retired from public life by 1801, but that's not to say that he still ha can lend a hand in what he thinks is um, essential to ensure um, mariners' safety coming in and, in and out of the harbors of Boston and uh, Salem and Marblehead. And then you have other, um, other young leaders of the New Republic who are also um, letting it be known why uh, lighthouses are essential, given that our population has grown. Because think about it, by the time uh, the War of 1812 breaks out, we have 17 states in the Union now. I mean, we've added Tennessee, Kentucky, Vermont, Ohio. So as our population is growing, by the time the War of 1812 breaks out, we our population is almost 8 million. So that's quite a... Um, but we've doubled since the time the Constitution was signed. So now that we have more people, we've also got to think about jobs. We have to think about what sectors are growing, like manufacturing in the north. Um, mercantilism is still growing strong. So we need, um, if we're having more goods coming in and out of the harbor, what does that mean? You're going to need more lighthouses to ensure uh, safety. So I can give you a good example here of one of the uh, lighthouses that of these 34 lighthouses that was built. It was a lighthouse at Truro, Massachusetts. And how ironic, I've, my wife and I have been to Truro. Uh, we went with another couple to uh, Cape Cod. It'll be nine years this summer, and that was a wonderful trip. Uh, we stayed in Hyannis, but we went all the way up to the northern uh, tip of Cape Cod, uh, which includes Truro. So it's located between Provincetown and Wellfleet. And for those of you who have always assumed for years that the Pilgrims landed in what we now know as Plymouth Rock, I'll throw a good curveball at you. The Pilgrims actually first arrived at Provincetown, and they stayed there for about three to five weeks before officially arriving to what we now know as Plymouth Rock. And if you do visit Cape Cod and go to Provincetown, one of the uh, most important things I recommend that you do in Provincetown is you, um, hopefully they will do this um, once, um, once more and more people continue to get vaccinated and it's safe to do it, but I'm glad that my wife and I did it when we did. We got to go inside the uh, lighthouse at Provincetown and got to walk. We went up hundreds of flights of steps, but each step, each flight of step you went up, there were um, all the towns and cities in Massachusetts, and it also listed the year that they were uh, that each town and city was uh, founded. Talk about a lot of uh, significant history there, folks. You're not just going up flights of steps, but you're also appreciating history, knowing the years that the towns and villages were settled by those in Massachusetts whom um, whom uh, contributed something very significant uh, that still lasts to this day. So when you think of Provincetown, think of where that, of that town being where the pilgrims actually made their first um, establishment being temporary before going to Plymouth. That was the um, true um, official establishment. But anyways, Truro is located between Provincetown and Wellfleet, right near the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. Well, what does that mean if you're located right near the shores of the Atlantic Ocean? Yes, you can get some nice views oceanfront views, but that also means that there is trouble lurking beneath the water surface. 
shoals, those hidden sandbars, you know, ships getting too close to water's uh, edge or close to that uh, shoreline, they think that they're safe. They uh, hit a rock at the bottom. The ship flattens out to where goods or cargo, let alone, um, gets damaged, maybe even the loss of life. Well, the coast of Truro had, had been home to dozens of ships, which, in fact, had sunk over the years. So, what do you think the people, not only the people of Massachusetts did, but perhaps people in and around Truro went about doing? Well, over time, organizations like the Boston and Salem Marine Societies, including the Massachusetts Humane Society, all came together to petition Congress in 1796, not long after George Washington uh, steps down, to, to request having a lighthouse be built around the highlands of Truro, a bluff rising more than 100 feet above sea level to stretching a mile along the coast. Well, the people got their wish and their request. On November 15, 1797, the Truro Lighthouse, 45 feet tall, went into operation. And John Adams is president by this time, folks. Now, um, Truro, uh, Massachusetts, real quick, folks, that's a neat um, town. Uh, my wife and I, along with our, the other couple who went with us, uh, did get to see the Truro Lighthouse, and it's a magnificent lighthouse. And uh, we also got to um, do a winery in Truro called Truro Vineyards of Cape Cod. So if any of you are looking to go to Cape Cod and want to uh, go to a winery, uh, I recommend Truro Vineyards. Um, you won't regret going there. But uh, I'd love to get back to Cape Cod one day. Uh, that's, uh, that's a nice place. As a matter of fact, we stayed in uh, Hyannis, and we even got to visit, um, we got to do many of things, but we did get to visit the JFK Museum uh, after all the Kennedys vacationed in Hyannis during the summer, during their uh, summers and when he was president. But uh, the Cape alone, folks, that's a, a great place. And I think uh, those who came before us, especially during the time that they uh, requested that a lighthouse be built around uh, Truro's coast to prevent uh, ships from, um, to prevent further ships from, um, from um, experiencing disasters. I believe that they would be happy to know that the Truro lighthouse still stands uh, tall and mighty. Here's a question that um, I'm going to end this to end this um, podcast session for you all, and it's an important one. Given that lighthouse management in the Republic's er early years fell under the Treasury Department, did the President of the United States himself have any involvement? Yes. All management decisions, ranging from approving lighthouse locations, construction contracts, to appointing lighthouse keepers allowed for the president himself to be directly involved in all lighthouse-related affairs. You know, this is an important thing, folks. I mean, after all, you know, some people say, oh, lighthouses wouldn't really uh, be considered national security, but I think they are. After all, you know, ships coming in and out of your harbor, uh, foreign goods, you know, foreign commerce, say from like England or France that's coming into the United States, uh, domestic, whether it's interstate or intrastate, all of that's important, folks. You know, commerce is a commerce is the uh, what do you call it? It's the continuous flow of um, 
of good, not just so much of goods coming in, but how we build re network relations with uh, countries overseas to ensure that supply and demand uh, can be met even not only through the best of times, but through um, more difficult times. But the President of the United States did have a right to be involved in this. After all, George Washington would know where more lighthouses would have been needed in demand given where populations are growing. And even after he's president, after he becomes president, he already can see for himself that the North is having a greater population explosion versus the South. And a lot of that is attributed to the fact that the North that the North's economy is based on mercantilism, whereas the South is agrarian. That's not to say, though, that Charleston, Savannah, and even Norfolk, Virginia would be dependent upon, um, upon lighthouses. It's just that if you have a larger population in one region of the country versus another, your demand for more lighthouses is going to be in that region where um, you have a greater population of people on the coast along with, um, which also means that you are going to have a greater demand of ships coming in and out of the harbors to supply people with their most essential needs. I think it should also be fair to point out that, you know, in the early years of the Republic's existence, we didn't have what we now know as interest groups. So even when Thomas Jefferson became president, there were a couple of times where Jefferson himself was known to go before um, a congressional committee and advocate something that he wanted Congress to uh, pass, or not just so much law-wise, but maybe, um, yeah, you could say like a, a piece of legislation that he felt should be enacted into law. So basically, presidents themselves were like, uh, they were their own person, but yet they almost advocated as if they were part of an interest group. So I think it's very fair to say that practice even could still exist to in today's modern world, but yes, for the president himself to have been involved with the lighthouse affairs, that was very crucial because, after all, we've got to ensure that our nation, given that it's a young nation during this time, continues to go forward in the right direction, but we should not also underestimate the wisdom of men like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who, when you think about it, uh, who, from the start of 17, from 1789 onward, leading up to the War of 1812, these three presidents have overseen a phenomenal expansion of lighthouses. So, considering um, that into the second decade of the 19th century, folks, we have almost 50 lighthouses, that's uh, remarkable onto itself. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to be in part two of uh, Lights of a New Nation given that we're still talking about Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. What we're going to be discussing next is uh, the um, history behind how America's lighthouses were illuminated. We're not going to talk about every form of illumination, but I do believe it is important to discuss um, how um, the first lighthouses were illuminated and how um, different methods evolved over time in the early years. Thank you again for listening, and as I said early on, uh, thank you to all of my fellow listeners who have been listening to me um, since the start of June or who came along after uh, June of last year and have um, gotten my word out to several other people. Uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It uh, means a great deal to me, 
And I look forward to being on the air again next as we talk more about these uh, brilliant beacons, American lighthouses, that even in today's modern world still play a significant role in the um, in our oceans, in ships coming in and out from from numerous places around the world. They still do have a fundamental purpose. It may not be the same as it was 200 years ago, but they still are fundamental to our nation's livelihood. Take care and stay safe.